Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Austin. And today, before we get started, we have some new Patreons to shout out. Oh, whoa. <laughs> Jennifer Allen. Right on. Corey Remshell. Hell yeah. Erica Bakta. Let's go. Michaela Muir. <sighs> Mayor? I'm not sure. Sorry, Ma- uh, Michaela. Megan Maines. Heck yeah. Geneva Almeida. Geneva. Lindsay W. Lindsay W. Ambra Smith. Yep. And Chelsea Praisewater. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. So we have some exciting news for our Patreons. I'm excited about this, but if you are a Patreon, go to our page on Patreon and scroll to where you see the Facebook um, group link and join our private Facebook group if you're on Facebook, because from here on out, if we do a live or like a recording, we're going to do that on Patreon so that you can watch us. And we have some really beautiful new chairs coming and it's just going to be a whole vibe. We're going to sit there and talk and you'll actually be able to watch us record. Um, If you're on TikTok, we go live on TikTok too. Um, We're actually live right now as we're recording this. So um, you can watch us there too. But for Patreon, we're going to give you guys some extra special benefits. So make sure you go and join that group. If you're on Patreon, go find that link. Let's go. You ready? Let's dive into the show. The Gainesville Ripper. Okay, so you know how sometimes at the beginning of a scary movie, it'll say something in the beginning like based on a true story or inspired by true or real events? Mm Mm-hmm. We actually talked about this in the episode of, uh, was it Ed Kemper, the guy that made the nipple belt? I don't remember that. He was digging up dead bodies. I think he was Ed Kemper. I might be saying the wrong name, but um, he was like digging up bodies and using flesh from those bodies to make like lampshades and seat coverings and a nipple belt. A belt what is a of nipple nipples. belt? It's exactly what you would think it is. It's a belt that goes around your waist of cut up nips. And there's nipples all, all yes. over it. Nothing wrong with that, right? So anyway, that that uh, that story inspired the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, I'm sure we've all heard of the original movie Scream, right? Good movie. Yeah. With well, the, back in the day, I mean, decent. It was in the '90s, but it, um, you know, it had the creepy character Ghostface, who was terrorizing young kids, portrayed by Derry, uh, Drew Barrymore, Courtney Cox, and Nev Campbell. Mm-hmm. So that movie was inspired by the story that I'm going to be telling you today. The screenwriter for Scream, uh, Kevin Williamson is his name, he watched in real time as news stations reported on the serial killings out of Gainesville, Florida. And while he watched these broadcasts, he was house-sitting for a home in L.A. and noticed one of the windows was left open. And the fear that was caused by this serial killer out of Florida spread all the way across the country to L.A. And everybody became just a little more cautious of their protection and their safety. So the paranoia that he felt when he realized the window was open inspired the plot for the movie Scream, and then Scream became one of the most iconic horror films of all time. I had no idea it had a real, based on a true story. Yep, now you know. But for the people of Gainesville, Florida, this was no make-believe horror film. This was their real-life horror. In August of 1990, over the course of three days, police would find the mutilated bodies of five college students in their three separate apartments— The scenes were horrific, and it shocked everyone in the college town to their core. 
Students from the University of Florida started leaving campus to return to their parents. They made sure to lock the doors and started buying guns for protection. And students who lived alone started spending the night with friends so that nobody was alone. And some students even transferred to a new school altogether. Sheesh. But more devastated than anyone were the families of the victims. Sonia Larson, Christina Powell, Christina Hoyt, Manny Taboda, and Tracy Paulus. Five people? Five people. So Sonia Larson was born to parents Ada and Jim. She was very outgoing. She was kind and described as just a dream child by her mother. She was very reserved, sweet, and shy, and she loved working with children. She had a brother, Jim Jr. In fact, seven years after losing his sister, Jim's wife, Carla, was murdered in Orlando after being abducted from a Publix parking lot by a man named John Huggins. At the time, Jim and Carla had a 13-month-old daughter named Jessica. John Huggins was on vacation with his estranged wife at the time that he murdered Carla, and then he left her nude body in a field. And he was ultimately convicted and sentenced to death. But, man, this family has just been struck with so much grief. And that guy's a dirtbag. Yeah, for sure. Ada still remembers the last time that she saw Sonia. They were at home in Deerfield Beach, and Ada was about to leave for the day. Sonia was still in bed, but she was planning on leaving for Gainesville later that day to move in with her friend Christy Powell. They'd tried to find a dorm together, but everything was taken, so they ended up settling for an apartment off campus. Sonia was so excited to start school at the University of Florida, and she planned on studying science and pre-engineering, which is, I mean, you got to be crazy smart to study science and Mm pre-engineering. She was a member of Students Against Drunk Driving, and she was also a manager for her high school's varsity basketball team. Nice. Christy Powell was so excited to become a Gator. Her family was so proud of her, they paid for her room and board, and they even gave her this gator necklace that she was so proud of, she never took it off. She planned to study architecture, and she was the editor of her high school's yearbook, as well as a member of the literary magazine at her school. She was active in her church and in her youth group. Christina Hoyt graduated from Newberry High School and was attending Santa Fe College on a scholarship with plans to transfer to the University of Florida. She was an honors student studying chemistry. She worked as a records clerk in the Alachua, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but Alachua County Sheriff's Office, and her nickname was Glowworm because she was always smiling and just always glowing. She loved to cook, camp, swim, and play racquetball, and she wanted more than anything to eventually become a police officer. Tracy Paulez grew up in Palm Springs North in Northwest Miami-Dade, Florida. She really loved to dance, especially with her older sister, Lori. Lori was older than Tracy by two years, but they had a very tight bond. Their father, George, worked in construction and provided a modest living, and they didn't have a lot of money, so Tracy worked really hard to make a living for herself. She achieved honors in high school, graduating in 1983, and then she worked full-time as a paralegal at a law firm in Miami, saving up money to put herself through college. She attended the University of Florida and was a senior in August of 1990 with intentions to go to law school after graduation. I just want to point out, these women were so smart. Super smart chicks, good heart. Yeah, and like, 
such a future for them. You know, they had so much potential and they were just completely robbed of it. And I feel like we were robbed of really good people. Mm-hmm. So Tracy and her roommate, Manny, were very close friends, but never dated. Manny was attending Santa Fe College, but had plans to enroll in the University of Florida with Tracy. He was six foot two, 200 pounds, very handsome. He was in the National Honor Society, and he was also an offensive guard on his football team. And he also acted in the school drama club. So he's just very <laughs> versatile. So why is Manny getting friend zoned? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. But they were just good friends. So like Christy Powell, Manny wanted to become an architect as well. And he worked hard as a bartender to save up money to go to college. His father died when he was young. So from an early age, he had to become protective and responsible as the new man of the house. And that carried through to his adulthood in the way that he passionately protected his friends. It's a good thing you didn't friend zone me. Oh, I couldn't. You're (laughs) irresistible. Let's go. (laughs) So on August 16th of 1990, it was a Thursday, and Sonia and Christy had just moved into their apartment, and it would be their very first night there. Christy's sister and brother-in-law were set to arrive a couple days later that Saturday morning with the rest of Christy's furniture and her belongings. But when they arrived, nobody answered the door, and there were notes posted to the door from their friends who were trying to reach them. Their phone hadn't been set up yet, so this was really the only way that anyone could try to reach them. But when they didn't answer the door that Saturday morning, Sonia's mom became concerned, so she called Christy's family to go back and check on them again. They're banging on the door, but nobody is answering, and at this point, they know something has to be wrong. Either something's wrong with the girls inside or they've gone missing, but obviously something's not right. So they get a hold of someone who works at the apartment complex, and they ask them for some assistance. This person calls the police to see if an officer could meet him out there while he tries to enter this apartment, just in case. So an officer meets them there, and he approaches the door with Christy's family right behind him, along with a maintenance worker and one of the property managers. They gain entry into the apartment and are met with just a horrifying scene. It was so disturbing that even the maintenance man ran out of the apartment screaming, Oh God, oh God and threw up outside. Oh, my. So after the girls went to sleep Thursday night, an intruder broke into their apartment. He first found Christy, who was asleep on the couch, and he stood there watching her sleep before he decided to explore upstairs. There he found Sonia in her room asleep. He put tape over Sonia's mouth, and then he stabbed her to death with a K-bar knife, the same type of knife that was used in the Idaho murders that we've been talking about. She'd been stabbed multiple times, and it was clear she fought vigorously with her attacker. But when the attacker was finished, he posed Sonia on the end of her waterbed with her feet on the floor and her hair fanned out above her head. She had been stripped of her clothing as well. Man, that takes a real freak to take somebody and pose them after you murder them. Yeah, yeah. So then the attacker returned to Christy downstairs and stabbed her multiple times as well. She was raped, and her breasts had been mutilated. Her hands were tied together with tape, but then the tape had been removed, possibly in an effort to hide fingerprints or other evidence. And she'd also been covered with dish soap and a towel in what appeared to be an attempt to clean her up or hide or destroy evidence as well. 
So just a couple hours after finding the bodies of Christy and Sonia that Saturday, police received another call about another murder not far. Christina Hoyt didn't show up for work that day, which was highly unusual as Christina was always very punctual. The day after Christy and Sonia were murdered, the same attacker broke into another home, prying the door open with a flathead screwdriver, but nobody was there. So he waited. At about 11 a.m., Christina Hoyt arrived home and was attacked from behind. She never saw it coming. The attacker placed her in a chokehold and then used duct tape over her mouth and around her wrists. She was then led into her room where she was raped and then stabbed repeatedly in the back. Then the attacker turned her over and sliced open her abdomen from her breastbone all the way to her pubic bone. Jesus. And now this is even more disturbing, but the attacker actually left the scene and then returned later that day. And at this point, he decapitated Christina and placed her head on a shelf next to her bed facing her body so that whoever discovered her would be 10 times more horrified than the way he left her before. So you want to talk about posing, being yeah, crazy? Like, That's crazy. My jaw's just on the floor. What the hell? So as new news and details of the murder spread, the community realized that this was the work of a possible serial killer, and it understandably left students from the University of Florida terrified, so much so that kids started leaving. They were going home to their parents. Some even transferred out of University of Florida altogether, and the university decided to cancel classes for the week, and students were buying guns. They were staying in groups. They were taking whatever extra precaution they could to stay safe. Not knowing that you could maybe be right next to the person. Yeah. That's the weirdest part. Yeah, that's the scariest part. So meanwhile, just a few miles from the scenes of the murders, there was a bank robbery. And police got the call that the robbery was in progress, so they rushed to the bank, but the, t the thief was already gone by the time they got there. The teller told police that the man was wearing a ski mask and that he or she put a red dye pack in the bag with all the money. And these red dye packs resemble a bundle of money, but they're actually an explosive device that emits red dye and red smoke shortly after a robber leaves the bank. So that night, a deputy observed a man running into a wooded area. So he kind of tracks him into the woods, and he comes upon this campsite, but the guy was not there. However, Shout out to the deputy for having the balls to chase this dude into the woods. See, and I don't know if he actually chased right after him or if he just kind of kept an eye on him and was like, I'm going to see what is in the woods. Like, why would this guy go into the woods? And then just kind of came upon it. Like, I don't know how long after the guy went into the woods that the deputy went into Yeah, the I wouldn't have the balls. <laughs> would you? Got it. Fuck no. <laughs> yeah, okay, thank you. And none of you people listening would either, so talk your shit. So on Monday the 27th, the killer strikes again, and this time he entered another apartment in the same way he did the others, by prying open a door with a flathead screwdriver. Manny Tabota is asleep inside, and when the attacker finds him, he stabs him, which wakes Manny up. Now remember, Manny is six foot two, 200 pounds, and he starts to fight back. But this attacker, who is armed with a blade, likely a K-barred knife, continues to stab Manny, and he succumbs to his injuries. Manny's roommate, Tracy Paulus, could hear a commotion, so she goes out into the hallway to see what's going on, and she spots the attacker. So she locks herself back into her room, but the attacker breaks the door down. He then taped her mouth and her wrists, much like he did with the other girls, and then he cut off her clothing, 
and raped her before stab- stabbing her multiple times in the back. Then he posed her body similarly to how he did with the other victims, but left Manny where he was. They were discovered the next day when friends became concerned that they were unreachable. So three days, three murders, and now investigators are realizing the pattern. Same mode of entry, same mode of attack, all small brunette women, with the exception of Manny, who was unlikely an unexpected victim. But let's think about how terrifying it is that a man could take down a six foot two, 200 pound man in addition to all these women. Like we're dealing with somebody who's strong and capable. I mean, and everybody's got to be freaked out there, but imagine if you're a small brunette woman. Yeah. So they realize this is definitely the work of a serial killer. So now that police are identifying the similarities between the murders, they're able to develop somewhat of a profile, but they also notice that every apartment had a similarity, that the point of entry faced the woods, so the attacker was able to escape and then hide relatively quickly, and authorities enlisted the help of state troopers, the FBI, and then tons of media. Media outlets arrived in droves, all vying for a chance to cover this story and hopefully find out who was doing this. But this created a lot of problems because they released details while also creating a lot of pressure on the police. So one name really stood out among the tips that were coming in, and that was Ed Humphrey. So Ed was a freshman at the University of Florida, and he was suffering from some mental health issues, but he wasn't taking his medications. He had been diagnosed as having bipolar, and he was prescribed lithium. But after the death of his grandfather and the contentious divorce of his parents, his attitude towards life just really took a nosedive. He was involved in two car accidents that his friends suspected were suicide attempts, and these accidents left Ed with significant scarring on his face. So these scars paired with his flat affect when he was on the lithium, made him a convincing murder suspect when you just looked at his picture. So with everyone on high alert, the community was so hypervigilant that they would call in tips when Ed, Ed was just hanging out around woods or wearing camouflage, or at one point he was even seen with a knife. And then he was arrested after he beat his grandmother so severely that she suffered numerous fractures to her face. So dude was kind of psycho. So, I mean, he's I was not just, a great guy. Like, I know we're judging him by the way he looks and, like, you know, just the I'm, way he I'm comes more off. judging him. That was the public judging him, and it would suck to look like a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I'm more judging him by beating the shit out of his grandma. For sure, for sure. I, that's why I wanted to make sure I said both things. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people are obviously judging him, but you're not judging a great guy. So, anyway, we're going to move on. Wouldn't it suck to look like a serial killer? However the hell that looks. Like, if people looked at you and they're like, yeah, I mean, I Ted can Bundy see was a serial killer and people thought he was attractive. So, I don't know that there's technically like a type or a. That Night Stalker, way to too. Look. People thought Night Stalker was good oh, looking. Oh, God. He was, he he was, was creepy. so ugly. Let's and keep he going. smelled terrible from what I've heard. I never from smelled him. From what I heard. I never smelled him, but he apparently smelled her- terrible. So, once. Ed was arrested and his mugshot was blasted all over social media. People were convinced this had to be the guy just because of his startling appearance. But it certainly didn't help his case that the murders stopped as soon as he was arrested. So now police are trying to build a case against Ed Humphrey and figure out just how he has ties to these murders or if he does. 
So they were able to obtain semen from the crime scenes, but at this point in 1990, DNA testing wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. And just like we saw in the Eastburn murders case in episode 121, they could rely only on blood samples for a blood type. So forensics was able to test the semen and determine the blood type from that semen, and the type was type B. So they collect a blood sample from Ed Humphreys and determine his blood type, but it was type A. However, they still feel like they had enough against him because of a pubic hair that was at the scene that was similar to his. I mean, can you imagine just like being accused of a crime because you have similar hair? Yeah, that's intense. That would be really scary. So he remained in custody on a $1 million bond, which at the time was only for the assault of his grandmother, and that seemed really extreme, but I think police behind the scenes were still trying to figure out how he could be connected to these murders, and they just really didn't want to lose him. So as media attention on the murders grew, police in Shreveport, Louisiana, felt like the details of the crimes were eerily similar to a triple murder that took place the year before, back in November of 1989. Tom Grissom and his 24-year-old daughter, Julie, and then Julie's 8-year-old nephew, Sean, were all at Tom's house celebrating Sean's birthday. Sean's dad was on his honeymoon the week before as he had just gotten married. They were killed on November 4th, but weren't found until November 6th, when neighbors noticed that their cars hadn't moved in days. When police entered the home, they found 24-year-old Julie posed in a similar display to how Sonia Larson was left, on the edge of the bed with her feet on the floor and her, ha- her hair fanned out above her head. She'd also been stabbed multiple times and bound with duct tape, which was then removed and taken with the attacker. I mean, this had to be the same guy. They were able to test some of the DNA found at the scene in Shreveport and found that just like the murders in Gainesville, the type left behind was type B. So great, they found a connection between Shreveport and Gainesville, but they still don't have a name. So enter Cindy Jurisich. Oh, Cindy's about to be on some bullshit. (laughs) Cindy's about to crack the case. Cindy's going to crack this case, guys. Cindy was living in Shreveport, but she was vacationing in the Florida Panhandle with her husband when she heard about the murders. When she heard the the horrific details, it made her think of this guy that she met at a church back at her home in Louisiana, this guy named Danny Rawling. They befriended Danny, and for a while, he would come over to their house almost every night to hang out. And one of those nights, Cindy was in the other room, and her husband at the time, Stephen, came into the room and said, he has got to go. And she's like, why? Stephen said, he just told me he's got a problem. And Cindy said, what kind of problem? To which Stephen responded, he likes to stick knives into people. So yeah, that's a problem. That's going to be a problem, Danny. He just exposed that? He just came out and said he likes to stick knives into people. So they kicked Danny out of the house. They never saw him again after that. But when... She heard of the murders down in Gainesville and the possible connection to her hometown of Shreveport. It reminded her of another thing Danny said during their time together. He told her, quote, one day I'm going to leave this town and I'm going to go where the girls are beautiful and I can just lay in the sun and watch beautiful women all day, end quote. So with this in mind, 
she knew she had to do something. It was just eating at her. She couldn't sleep. So she called the Crime Stoppers and told them everything she knew about Danny Rawling. So armed with this new tip, police do a little search on the name Danny Rawling, and it yielded a hit. Danny was arrested on September 7th of 1990, right after the murders took place. It was actually 10 days after the bodies of Manny and Tracy were found. So Danny was arrested, and he was being held in a jail just 40 miles away from Gainesville for robbing a supermarket. So they start kind of looking into Danny Rawling. Danny Harold Rawling was born in Shreveport, Louisiana on May 26th of 1954 to Claudia and James Rawling. They got married when Claudia was only 19 years old and found out that they were pregnant just a couple weeks later. James, who was previously in the Navy and then became a lieutenant for the Shreveport Police Department, was not happy about this. He never wanted children, and he made sure everyone in his family knew it. His kids knew it, and his wife knew it. And he habitually abused his wife and children. The abuse towards Danny started when he was only one year old, when his dad beat him because he wasn't crawling correctly. Oh, my God. And when his little brother Kevin was born the following year, the abuse just got worse. So, like, why have kids if you so blatantly don't want them? Like, you know how this happens. That just really confuses me. Mm-hmm. But Claudia tried to escape the toxic marriage, but over and over she returned, despite the fact that the physical abuse towards her and her kids was happening more than once or twice a week, and the verbal abuse was literally daily. It was constant. He was, for lack of a better word, just a complete asshole. He wouldn't let the kids celebrate their birthdays or holidays. He beat the family dog so severely that it died in Danny's arms. Oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. So when Danny was eight or nine, he was really struggling in school and had to repeat the third grade because he had missed too many days of school due to illness. But according to his school counselors, they also believed that he suffered from an inferiority complex with aggressive tendencies and poor impulse control. By age 11, Danny tried to find healthy ways to cope with his turbulent home life by learning how to play the guitar. He would play hymns, and he even took himself to church. He wrote songs. I think in his mind, he someday wanted to be like a country superstar. But his life was even more derailed when his mom tried to commit suicide and ended up in the hospital with gashes in her wrists. This may have been the last straw for Danny because at this point, he really started to just treat his pain with drugs and alcohol. I think he just kind of gave up and went down just an awful path. Man, through all those formidable years, what he was growing up around just built this monster. Right, and I feel like it makes a conversation at least For the concept of nature versus nurture, some people are just born bad. You can be born to a perfectly good family with normal parents and a stable home life and still turn out like a piece of shit. But you can also be abused since you were young and turn out like a piece of shit. And I mean, I'm not. You were taught. Obviously, I'm not making excuses. What he did was horrible. But I mean, this is, you know, how not to raise a serial killer 101. Yeah, from 1 to 11, you beat him and his family and killed his dog. And Yeah, I mean, it's trauma after trauma. Mm-hmm. So when Danny was 14, he got caught by his neighbors peeking into their daughter's bedroom. And this got him into huge trouble, and he ended up receiving a vicious beating from his dad. 
So at this point, Danny decided to enlist into the Navy, but they wouldn't take him, so he chose to go to the Air Force instead. But while he was in his training, he was taking acid regularly and ended up getting discharged because of that. There was his last shot at an attempt to maybe go down the path of a normal, more normal life than what he'd been living, I would think. Yeah, or even just becoming a decent person or even having some structure. Right, structure would be the best way. So at 19, he met his wife, O'Mather Halco, and they were married on September 6th of 1974. They would go on to have a daughter together, but O'Mather would leave him after only a few years because he started abusing her and at one point threatened to kill her. After the divorce, Danny met a woman who closely resembled his ex-wife, and he raped her. And then later that same year, he killed a woman in a car accident. This propelled Danny into just a life of crime involving multiple burglaries and armed robberies, which landed him in prisons throughout the South. He was living with his parents back in Shreveport when he got out, and one day in May of 1990, he got into a huge fight with his dad. His dad essentially chased him out of the house at gunpoint. So Danny left, got a gun, came back to the house, and shot his dad right between the eyes. But his dad lived. And Danny, at this point, went on the run. He fled down south and just became a drifter. So while Danny was being held in the Marion County Prison, just 40 miles south of Gainesville, investigators contacted the military to see if they had his blood type on file so that they could compare it to the sample that they collected from the crime scenes. The results showed that Danny had the type B blood that they were looking for, but that wouldn't really be enough. So then a light bulb goes off in their minds and the investigators look deeper into the unsolved armed robbery that took place on the day that Christina Hoyt's body was found, the one that led them to the campsite with the red stained money. They go back through some of the evidence that they took from that campsite and find that tape recorder. Nobody had ever pressed play on that recorder. And so... They press play. The way it was there constantly. It was there forever. It was there the whole time. Nobody ever pressed play. There was a tape in the recorder, in the cassette tape. Like, there was a cassette tape in the recorder. Nobody ever thought to press play and see what was on it. Wow. So at this point, they press play, and instantly they are creeped out. Probably got the goosebumps. Because on this tape, a man is singing and playing guitar, and the lyrics are about a drifter who's gone insane and started killing And then he stops singing and he'll just talk about random things like hunting deer and exactly where to shoot the deer to make sure it's fatal, like really aim for the lungs, aim for the ribs. Get the heart. The heart would be great, but it's better if you get the lungs. And then he starts talking about himself and the third person and reveals his name, Danny Harold Rawling. Had they pressed play on that recorder the day they found it in the woods, maybe Tracy and Manny would still be here. And that is something that those police officers live with every day. So in November of 1991, Danny Rowling was charged with five counts of murder, but his trial wouldn't start for another few years. But right before his trial started, he unexpectedly pleaded guilty to the murders and admitted that he did it because he wanted to be a superstar. He admitted some horrifying details about the the attacks, and I did read them, but I don't think I'm going to go into detail um, about those on here because they really are just heartbreaking for the victims, and I think we've really done enough. 
and I'd hate to give him any more attention that he's already gotten here. So on April 20th of 1994, a jury decided that he should be put to death by lethal injection because a jury ultimately had to decide if he should just spend the rest of his life in prison or die by lethal injection. And they were like, no, put this fucker down. Mm -hmm. But he wouldn't be executed until October 25th of 2006, which is really sad because some of the uh, fathers of the victims passed away before he was ever executed. So he ended up outliving some of the victim's fathers, which they put just it, feels really unfair. They gave him 12 years to live. Like, mm-hmm. put, it, put, put it on the calendar and go. Yeah. Like, let's That's just... That's crazy. Let's just go. Let's fucking go. Sorry, there's a lot of cussing in this episode. You think you're cool? <sighs> anyway, shortly before he was put down, he admitted to the murders in Shreveport as well. It's insane. Shortly after the murders, a teacher named Adam Tritt painted a mural on a famous mural wall in Gainesville called the 34th Street Wall. This wall is a popular canvas for graffiti artists, and there is a section of the wall that remains unchanged to this day, and it is a dedication to Sonia Larson, Christina Powell, Krista Hoyt, Manny Taboda, and Tracy Paulez. In 2010, the University of Florida Infraternity Council installed a plaque in front of the mural, and five trees were planted in their honor as well. That's cool. I mean, it seems like such a small thing you could do to honor five lives. Not saying five lives, not saying it's insignificant, but I mean, this left a huge impact on the city of Gainesville. Gainesville started out as this idyllic college town. It was a small town. It had that good small town feel. It wasn't, you know, built up like a big city. And, you know, it was a place where people could feel safe and people were excited to go to college there. They were Gators. I mean, football was a huge deal. Mm -hmm. And then this just terrified everybody. I mean, it changed the dynamic forever, I think. And it changed the way people viewed their security. Like people were buying locks off the shelves. People were buying guns and learning how to use them. I mean, that's a scary feeling to mm-hmm. not feel safe in your own home mm-hmm. and not know who the hell is out here doing this. I had no idea this was what Scream was based off of. You know what? I actually didn't either. This case was recommended um, multiple times by some of our <laughs> listeners, and I, I never knew that it was uh, that the movie Scream was inspired by this. Like, I feel like I need to watch it again because I thought Scream was like kind of like. A complete bullshit scary movie. Well, and it, it is. But remember, Scream was just inspired by this. Mm-hmm. It's not an exact yeah. recollection of the events. But it's it I mean, did when it when Scream came out, mm-hmm. did they know that it was based off of this? I don't know. Inspired if that was, by this? I don't know if that it's was kind of widely in, known. It's I kind just, of insulting, isn't it? I mean, I'm yeah, I think it is. And a lot of the family, it's funny that you point that out, because now that I think about it, I read where some of the family were upset that this movie was made mm-hmm. because, you know, you're essentially cashing in on people's trauma, but you're doing nothing to repay what you've cashed in, you know, like you're mm-hmm. not you giving know, back to their families or something. Exactly. It, yeah. The families never saw any kind of recognition. Like I'm a capitalist, but I feel like that's pretty crazy. That's a bold move. Cotton. Yeah. To capitalize on somebody's trauma just makes you an asshole. A little bit. A lot of it. Yeah. Well, that is it for today. Join us tomorrow. We are going to be recording our headlines episode in Austin. 
Should be on it. And I have the positive news. Some good news for yeah. the You episode. don't even know what it is either. I have no idea what it is. Came up with it the other night, and I haven't told her. Wait, did you make it up? Because it can't be made up. No, I came up with it like I found it. Don't accuse me of dumb shit. Gotta go. Mama. <sighs> Mystery. Out. Out.